Welcome to our study in the Epistle of Philippians. We're glad you're here with us. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 tonight. And uh, some of you have been asking about the archives. You can go to Torah Resource and uh, find the archives there. Um, and uh, if you have questions about how to find that, just let me know. We'll send you the link. Okay? All right. So as we do each week, let's begin with prayer and ask God's uh, help and his blessing upon us as we study his word. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it continues to guide us and to uh, show us where we need to change and as well as to encourage us in the ways of Yeshua. Father, we are grateful, so grateful, that you have loved us from the before the foundations of the world, that you have sent your Spirit to call us unto yourself, that you have given us the gift of faith and made us alive in Yeshua so that we can respond to you and so that we can have relationship with you and even an eternal relationship. We bless you, Lord. We thank you so much for so great a salvation that you have made for us because you have loved us even before time began. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we study it tonight in these wonderful verses uh, from Paul's epistle to the Philippians, that you would stir our hearts to be more and more the very people you intend us to be, that we might give you the honor and the glory and the uh, the hymns of praise, Lord, through our lives in what we say and do and how we treat one another and how we are lights in this world for those who do not yet know you. O Lord, I pray that our time together tonight would be blessed by your Spirit, that you might plant these words deeply into our hearts and minds so that we might carry them with us and that we might have them ever ready as we walk in this world. So we bless you for these things. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to read the second chapter of Philippians out of the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Messiah, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Yeshua every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Messiah I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare." For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Messiah Yeshua. But you know of his proven worth, that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord, that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it was necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Messiah, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. All right, so we're going to begin with uh, verse 10, and uh, that this will finish up the hymn, remember, the hymn uh, of the Messiah here, which began uh, verses earlier in 7, 8, and 9, uh, and even uh, one before that. And this is clearly something that was written by Paul, but done so with uh, some think there were earlier kinds of phrases that he uses. We don't know for sure. But we know that Paul wrote it, and he wrote it in a way that it would be easily remembered. So it's poetic. And uh, we call it a hymn because it seems very likely that it was uh, sung early on as a way of remembering these wonderful words that Paul, being led by the Spirit of God, penned as he wrote to the uh, Philippians. So verse 10, So that at the name of Yeshua every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So what has come before in the verses is the whole idea that Yeshua has been fully revealed the result of the now unrestrained revelation of Yeshua as the sovereign of the universe results in the necessity for every person to bow to his sovereignty. As we looked uh, last week, I want to again emphasize this and we'll be doing throughout this passage for sure. We have here a clear teaching of the inspired word of God that Yeshua is one with the Father and the Spirit and that he therefore is not created, but he had no beginning. He is eternal. He is one with the Father and the Spirit, 
and in that regard he is God in the flesh. I know that this is a, a problem that has gone on in the movement of which we are part, the so-called Messianic movement, because the Trinity doctrine became the hallmark of the Christian church. And since the Christian church was not akin to uh, what we would see as keeping the the Torah as a central issue of faith. Now, I'm not talking about the whole church, but I'm talking about the church that uh, that has basically led the way to saying that the old covenant has been done away with, the new covenant has come in, and the new covenant has replaced the old covenant, and the whole idea of Torah is therefore set aside. So, um, the whole idea that uh, the Trinity was a hallmark of the Christian church and that a good portion of the Christian church uh, have been taught and continues to teach that the, that the Torah, or at least majority of the Torah, has been done away with. That it's re- been replaced by new uh, kinds of uh, theology and so forth. And uh, so when the Messianic movement, particularly the more recent part of it, which took part, uh, began to grow in the, in the 50s and the 60s particularly, uh, it, was, it became kind of standard by many of the early communities and the teachers in those communities to deny the Trinity in order to show a distinction from the Christian church. But unfortunately, that undermines a clear teaching of the scriptures. The scriptures are clear, even if we can't fully explain it, and we cannot, The scriptures are clear that Yeshua is God, one with the Father and the Spirit, and that he has no beginning. Now, you say, wasn't there a time when he took on flesh? Yes, of course, but that did not change his essential character. He is infinite in all of his attributes. And even though, as we have learned in this wonderful hymn of Philippians 2, that he gave up the use of some of those attributes, which is when it says he emptied himself. And that whole kenosis that we talked about the last couple of weeks uh, has caused a large amount of uh, discussion and um, division amongst the, the Christian church as to what exactly that means. Some even went to the point of saying he was not divine. But when we read this hymn, when we read this portion of Philippians, along with other uh, parts of the Apostolic Scriptures, as well as the Tanakh, we have no choice but to admit and to revel in this reality that Yeshua is God in the flesh. He came to be one with us, but He existed from all eternity. So the one who was completely obedient unto death must now be completely obeyed. This is the point. The hymn uses the name Yeshua here, rather than Lord, as in verse 11, in order to emphasize that it is the same incarnate Son of God who poured himself out as a servant of Adonai and of men, who now reigns above all. The exalted king is not someone unknown or unseen, but is the very one who bears in his human body the scars acquired in his atoning work for sinners. That's kind of the overview of this verse and the ones that follow. And people say, well, we can't explain that. And if I can't explain it, I can't believe it. 
Well, then you have the wrong, and somebody who says that has the wrong view of faith. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the very substance of things not seen. We will inevitably come to the end of ourselves in being able to try to put everything together in a kind of logical way from our own viewpoint and the viewpoint of human reasoning and think that we have plumbed the depths of the mystery of God. No, forever he will be on our ability to fully comprehend. And we come face to face with that reality in our text tonight. Indeed, the historical record of Yeshua's birth teaches us that the name he would be given in his incarnation was not something chosen by Mary and Joseph, but was given and commanded by the angelic being who appeared to him, that is, to uh, Joseph, as he was intending to divorce Mary, who was betrothed to him. These are familiar verses in Matthew 1, 20-21. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Here we are given the very meaning of the name Yeshua. And there you have it in the Hebrew. I've tried to, throughout this uh, lesson tonight, I've given you Hebrew and Greek uh, for those of you that know it or for those of you that want to uh, kind of see how it looks. Yeshua, uh, for the angel of the Lord states, for he will save Yoshia, his people, from their sins. So you can see how it has the same uh, uh, characters with different vowels. Thus, it is clear that the name Yeshua, which comes across in the Greek, uh, Yesu, uh, and that's where we get Jesus, means Savior, for it is based upon the Hifil form of the Hebrew verb Yesha, which carries the meaning to help or to save. You shall call his name Yeshua. Why? Because he will Yeshu, <laughs> he will Yoshia, his people from their sins. So his very name means Savior. Some have questioned whether the act of worship, here described as every knee will bow, is offered directly to Yeshua, or rather to the Father, with Yeshua as the mediator of such worship. The reason for this question is the Greek construction. The verb kamto, to bend the knee or to bow, is sometimes accompanied by the preposition pros, that is, to bow toward something or to something. Here, however, it is literally in the name of Yeshua, not before or not toward the name of Yeshua. Ento onomati Yesu, that every knee will bow. Is it in the name of Yeshua, that is, that by means of Yeshua, every knee will worship God? Or does it mean that every knee will bow to Yeshua, meaning everyone will worship him? This fact has led some to translate the expression so that in the name of Jesus everyone should kneel. And to conclude that this clause means not the homage is to be paid directly to the name of Jesus, but that in, Je- in Jesus homage is to be paid to God. Jesus is the, quote, mediator through whom created beings offer their worship to God. For it is to God, not Jesus, that every knee shall bow. And uh, I've given you a couple of names of commentators as well as the one in the footnote there that uh, that he talks about this. But the context of this verse hardly can sustain such an interpretation. 
Yeshua has been given a name, which is Kurios, as we'll see, meaning Lord, which is above all names, and the connective Hine, in order, in order that, with which our verse begins, remember how it began? So, so that every knee will bow, in order that every knee will bow, makes it clear that the result of having such a name is that every knee bows to the one who bears that name. Moreover, the Septuagint uses in the name of the Lord to translate El Yodhevave or El Adonai in 1 Kings 8.44 in the phrase they pray to Adonai showing that for the Septuagint translators to pray to Adonai is to pray in the name of Adonai. Likewise, in Psalm 63.4, which is the Masoretic text 63.5, that is, if you look it up in your Hebrew Bible, it's going to be 63.5. If you look it up in a uh, in the Septuagint, it's going to be 62.5. And here we see that sometimes the, the verses are divided differently, and other times you have different uh, divisions between chapters. At any rate, in Psalm 63.4, the parallel lines show a similar usage of the phrase, in your name. So, I will bless you as long as I live, the psalmist says in Psalm 63.4, I will lift up my hands in your name. So what does that mean? I will bless you, I will lift my hands up in your name. In other words, the name and the one who is worshipped are together. And I've given you the the Hebrew and the uh, the Greek Septuagint there, so that you can see I've enlarged the words Beshimcha in your name, and then in the uh, in the Greek Entoonomati uh, Su. So in your name, here to lift up hands in your name is equivalent to I will bless you. In your name, therefore, carries a locative sense. That is, action directed toward an object. Note a similar usage in 44.8 and 105.3. This is the Psalms. In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Alright, so I'm just showing you uh, examples of to give thanks in someone's name means to give thanks to them. Why? Because in the Semitic world, your name is the sum of all that you are. The person's name encompasses their very being. Similarly, we may note 1 Kings 18.24 and the time when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal. Here, to call upon the name of means to call to the one bearing the name. So we have it in 1 Kings 18.24. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, yod and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, this is a good idea. So, when it says you shall call upon the name of your God, what was he saying to them? You shall pray to your pagan God, and I will pray uh, to my God, and to the Lord. And it says, and I will call on the name of the Lord. That means to honor him, to pray to him. And again, I've given you the uh, Septuagint and the Hebrew, if any of you want to look at it. I've enlarged uh, the phrases that correspond. Thus, there is no warrant to see in our hymn text anything other than worship directed to Yeshua as the Exalted One. It is to Yeshua that every knee will bow because He has revealed Himself to be the Lord over all. This dovetails perfectly with our study last week. How anyone can read these texts 
and come up to the idea that Yeshua is not fully divine. It is blasphemy to worship someone who isn't God. To bow the knee, to bow before him, and to proclaim him to be uh, divine when he really is not? If we don't have a divine Messiah, then we don't have a Savior. The, the scriptures are so clear about this in so many places, and of course here is a very uh, obvious place. And he says, every knee will bow. This phrase, every knee shall bow, along with and every tongue confess, of verse 11, are taken from Isaiah 45:23. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Now, obviously, this is Hashem, right? This is yod heh speaking. How is it possible, then, that Paul and others would take this very phrase and apply it to Yeshua unless it is clear that by the leading of the Spirit they understood, even if it were a mystery and could not fully explain, that Yeshua is one with the Father and that he is yod heh in the flesh. So here the speaker is yod heh uh, contrary to what many may may tell you, there's no way that we know for certain how to pronounce that ineffable name of God. And that's why it's we substitute Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord, which would be in the Septuagint translated with Kurios, the Greek Kurios. So here the speaker is yod heh yet the words of this verse are applied to Yeshua in our text. Indeed, in the previous verse, Isaiah 55:22, Adonai makes this clear with the following unambiguous statement: "Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other." And then, of course, as we just read, he says, "I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance." Now, Paul takes the core of this uh, Isaiah verse and applies it to Yeshua. Note then the verse which follows this bold declaration of God as the one and only God. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. That such a bold statement could be in the immediate context of the very text which our hymn applies to Yeshua shows beyond doubt that the apostles viewed the incarnate, now exalted Son as one with God in a real and absolute way, so much so that they could apply to him what the prophet clearly spoke of Adonai yod There is no other conclusion one can reach if one is willing to let the inspired text speak for itself, and it is this, Yeshua, our Messiah and Lord, is yod heh Adonai, in the flesh. Now, I know uh, many would say, well, Tim, how do you explain that? One of the things that I think we have all come to realize, and we come to realize it more and more as we study and as we fellowship together and as we live life together and as we uh, walk in this uh, fallen world, is that God has expressed himself to us in ways that we can understand, but ultimately in ways that we cannot fully explain. I mean, no one can explain fully 
why a God who is perfect without any defect would ever want to have relationship and fellowship with his created people who turned from him. Why would he want to have an eternal relationship with those who are finite and those who are sinners and those who have nothing that they can give him that he doesn't already have? He's in need of nothing. Why would he do that? And there's only one answer. And again, it is an answer that we cannot fully comprehend. It is because one of his eternal and infinite attributes is that of love. He has loved us with a love unspeakable, with a love that cannot be quantified. And how do we know that love? Because he sent his own Son, and Yeshua himself submitted himself, as this hymn is telling us over and over again. He did not consider the glory that he had with the Father, that it, that he needed to retain that glory in order to uh, come and be one of us. No, he would be willing to forego the outward glory and to give himself to the most hideous of deaths, the Almighty, Eternal One, dying for those who had never deserved his love. Well, there is no other conclusion one can reach if one is willing to let the inspired text speak for itself, and it is this, Yeshua, our Messiah and Lord, is yod heh vav Adonai in the flesh. This, along with other data offered, makes it clear that the worship rendered in the, in the bowing of the knee and the confession of the tongue is directed to, as, to, to Yeshua as one with Adonai. When we worship Yeshua, we worship the Father and the Spirit. If this boggles our minds or offends our theological categories, then we have simply come face to face with the unexplainable mystery of God. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The whole revelation of God is ultimately compacted into and by the person of our dear Savior, Yeshua. But though we cannot adequately uh, give explanations to satisfy our, our rational thought processes, we must still affirm and confess that Yeshua is worthy of our worship, and even more, that he demands the worship of all because he has the right to do so. He has this right because he is the I Am, the yod heh vav who is sovereign over all the universe. I know it's really, it's really difficult to try to put this all together, but we don't have to have all the answers to know that it's true. I mean, I can, we give all kinds of explanations. There's all kinds of things that we use every day that we can't explain. There are, I mean, even when we begin to ask our, ask questions of, you know, how does this work or how does that, uh, come together? I mean, when every time we use electricity, we're trying to figure out what is electricity? What is light? Well, there's all kinds of questions and all kinds of answers, but none of them are complete. And even the best of scientists have to come to the end and say the best we can say is this, but we use it all the time. We don't have to be able to dissemble and reassemble something in order to use it. If I can just use that kind of an illustration. 
we can put our whole lives based upon Yeshua because of what He has done for us, what He has revealed, what His Word says, the historical reality of His coming here and dying and raising from the dead and being having more than 500 witnesses seeing Him after He rose from the dead. And written down from the earliest days. If there's anything that we can be sure of, it is that Yeshua came, that He was born of a virgin, that He grew in wisdom and stature with God and man, and that He gave Himself as the only one possible to be sacrifice for sinners, to pay the way to have full and eternal relationship with God. In this regard, we are reminded of the time when Judas went to betray Yeshua to the Roman cohort and was leading them to where he knew Yeshua would be. We read of the event in John's Gospel. So Yeshua, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Yeshua the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, if you read it in almost every English translation, you'll hear him say, I am he. But, when you read that I am he, you should remember the fact is that the pronoun he is not in any of the extant Greek manuscripts. Rather, he simply stated, I am. And they fell backwards. They fell, drew, they drew back and fell to the ground. He simply stated, I am. Interestingly, the Greek text has ego eimi, I am, which is what the Septuagint has in Exodus 3.14 when God reveals to Moses his name. Now, it is true that the Greek ego eimi, uh, which is literally I am, can be used in a common sense, but the fact that it is used in the Septuagint to translate I will be what I will be in Exodus 3.14 may also explain the overwhelming reaction of the soldiers when Yeshua used the same expression, for they fell to the ground. What does it mean? I will be what I will be. It means I will never change. There's only one being in the whole universe that can claim that to be true and know that it is true. God does not change. He is always the same in all of His eternal and essential attributes. This clearly would indicate that as Yeshua spoke these words, he was proclaiming himself to be the eternal God incarnate, and that therefore power went forth from him which subdued the Roman cohort, causing them to fall to the ground. He is the I Am. Always has been. And so we go on to the next phrase, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The extent to which Yeshua's sovereignty extends that He is the Lord over those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. It extends, and thus the further definition of every knee is given in a series of three plural nouns, thus literally of heavenly beings, of earthly beings, and of under-the-earth beings. In the Greek, these three plural nouns, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, could be read as either masculine plural or neuter plural. The forms being the same. Now, in any inflected language like Greek, uh, you, you have you have the masculine, the feminine, and the neuter. 
So if you're using an adjective, for instance, and you're uh, addressing that to a masculine noun, then you have to use a masculine adjective. Same with the feminine. If you're expressing something with relating to a woman, for instance, and it's an adjective, it's going to have to be a feminine adjective. It has to agree. And the same thing with a uh, uh, neutral object, like a table or a, a chair or something like that. You might use neuter, even though some objects do have gender. <laughs> All right, so there's your quick Greek uh, lesson. So, in the Greek, these three plural nouns, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, could be read as either masculine, plural, or neuter, plural, the forms being the same. In other words, if they're masculine, it's talking about not things, but it's talking about beings, heavenly beings, earthly beings, and beings beneath the earth. What would beneath the earth mean? It probably is referring to demons and other non-physical kinds of beings, uh, whether demons or angels. It could be read as either masculine or neuter, because the forms in the Greek are the same. However, the context favors that they be uh, construed as masculine, since only rational beings can confess something. It says, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth will know, right? Isn't that the context? that these three designations are given in the first place to indicate a complete and comprehensive inventory of creation is without dispute. In antiquity, many people believed the universe was constructed in a three-storied arrangement and the inclusion of all three is equivalent to saying every being everywhere. So they looked at the heavens above, they looked at the earth that they lived upon, and they looked at what was down in wells and whatever, and under the sea and so forth. And so they kind of used that illustration to say that's everywhere. Such an all-comprehensive statement thus includes not only human, but also spirit beings, as well as angels, whether good or evil. Thus, Yeshua, the victorious sovereign, is viewed in his full exaltation as subduing all principalities and powers to his rule and his reign. And this is reiterated. I've given you some references there in Colossians and Ephesians as well. And then he goes on to say, and that every tongue will confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The connective word and, conjunction here, most likely makes this clause a second part of the in order that. Okay? In order that he would be seen as sovereign, if I can uh, make it uh, shortened up, and then, and in order that every tongue will confess. Yeshua was exalted and given a name above all names in order that, one, every knee would bow to him, and two, every tongue confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to come to saving faith in him. Why? Because now is the day of salvation. When Yeshua comes and brings the uh, the whole universe to its close and the opening of eternity, it will be too late for anyone to receive him as Savior. Thus, if the bowing uh, uh, of the knee bespeaks sovereign rule over all beings, confessing bears the picture of adoration and acceptance. As in the former, every knee shall bow. So here, 
every tongue emphasizes the universal reality of Yeshua's sovereignty. For every knee and every tongue is a strong way of encompassing all peoples. Right? When it says every knee and every tongue, it's talking about every uh, human action and every human speaking. Thus, all will confess Yeshua is Lord, whether willingly, that is, all who are His redeemed ones, or under divine mandate, that is, all who are eternally lost. Those from all of mankind who have been brought to faith in Yeshua, and thus are forever His, will be comprised of people from every family or nation. Right? Paul represents this fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Paul represents it here, but it's given to us in Genesis 12.3. In you, or in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We find it in Genesis 18.18 as well. Here we are finally given the name conferred upon Yeshua. It is Lord, Kurios. Everyone will confess that he is Kurios. The fact that Kurios is the most often used Greek term in the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew yod heh vav the ineffable and unknowable name of God, uh, it should not be overlooked. In other words, the fact that Kurios is the common Greek way of referring to yod heh vav in the Septuagint, when it says that a, a name will be confirmed upon him, what does it mean that it's the first time he has that name? No, he will be seen to have always had this reality, that he always has been Lord. He is the Creator, according to John 1. God, by openly bestowing the name upon Yeshua, has declared the indescribable yet absolute oneness the Father has with the Son, and has obliquely announced that the one who exists in the very nature of God is God Himself. Yet, paradoxically, the one whose name is above all names neither displaces nor rivals God but affirms the glory of the triune God, who is infinitely and eternally one, yet is revealed to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. This oneness, or infinite unity, is expressed by the fact that Yeshua our Messiah is revealed to be Kurios, Lord, and in this revelation of the truth, the Father is fully glorified. For Paul, this confession is the line of demarcation between the believer and non-believer, according to Romans 10.9. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who does not believe is judged forever. Such confession, he argues in 1 Corinthians 12.3, can come only by way of the Spirit. Hence, the crucial role of the Spirit in conversion this confession in Romans 10.9 is linked with conviction about the resurrection of Yeshua that that same combination is undoubtedly in view here. When at the end all creation beholds the risen Jesus, they will on that basis declare that Kurios is none other than the Jesus who was crucified and whom Christians worship. But the confession will not then be that of conversion but of final acknowledgement that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Acts 2.36 And of course I'm quoting from someone there, but I agree with, uh, I agree with him. Uh, when we think of true Christians, we believe of those who are truly believers in Yeshua. None of us have everything right. Even though we strive to, there will be a host of people that no one can number 
from every nation, from every tribe, from every language group, and so forth, who will stand forever as the trophies of God's love in Yeshua. Thus, the worship and adoration of Yeshua, who as Messiah is also Lord, in no way detracts from the glory of the Father. Rather, it is the purpose of the Father that the Son be glorified. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Messiah, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Therefore, in the very act of confessing Yeshua to be Lord, in praising His name which is above all names, in bowing before Him, the Father is glorified together with the Ruach, and to praise and worship the Father, to offer Him the glory due to His name, in no way detracts from the glory of the Son, for to honor the Father is to honor the Son. And I, I know that I'm pushing this and pressing this, but I want to. Because I think it's such an essential doctrine. And unfortunately, it is something that is uh, not nearly as central as it should be in a good deal of the Messianic groups. Now, I, I'm not saying the majority of them. I'm just saying in many. As I have traveled about and had the opportunity and privilege to speak in various places, not only in the States, but uh, outside of the States as well, and as we have an awful lot of uh, incoming emails and phone calls and so forth from people who are asking very good questions, and we're grateful for that, we come to find that it is not unusual to find Messianic teachers and Messianic groups that are led by these teachers who either deny the deity of Yeshua or they're unwilling to affirm it with full full affirmation. And the whole question of the to use the term the Trinity or if you'd rather the Godhead the Father, the Son and the Spirit surely the scriptures teach that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. And in that oneness they fully share the one reality of the God who is eternal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Ruach HaKodesh. It is such a central truth of our faith that we must do all within our power to see that the Scriptures teach this and teach it over and over again. It's not something that's just found once or twice. It's from the very beginning. When John, for instance, at the beginning of his gospel, says that nothing was created but what the Word created it, and he makes it clear that the Word is the Son, is Yeshua, then how do we put that together with Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, I know there are those who say, well... Uh, he used Yeshua as kind of a, uh, uh, a helper. Well, that's not what the scriptures teach. Nothing exists but what it was created by Yeshua. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit worked together, as they always do, to be the one true God, which is beyond our 
ability to explain. Therefore, in the very act of confessing Yeshua to be Lord, in praising His name which is above all names, in bowing before Him, the Father is glorified together with the Ruach. And to praise and worship the Father, to offer Him the glory due to His name, in no way detracts from the glory of the Son, for to honor the Father is to honor the Son. And this also means that we honor the Spirit who leads us and guides us, who who mourns, who grieves for us. For we are taught in the Scriptures, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby we have been made sons and daughters in His family. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And what does it mean? It means to give the Son, Yeshua, the same honor that we give to the Father and to the Spirit. Here is a central core of this hymn. And what a beautiful hymn it is. As we have studied through it, I hope it's been a challenge as well as a blessing to you as we continue to focus on the very person of our Savior Yeshua and the work that He's accomplished for us. Now next week, Lord willing, if He enables us, we're going to begin our time next week by just doing a very uh, pretty quick overview of this hymn and looking at the clear applications that we've seen as we've gone along. All right, so that's where we'll end for this evening. Thank you again for coming and being part of our study tonight. And Lord willing, I look forward to being with you again next week as we continue again in this great epistle to the Philippians.